State Representative Tommy Pearson has represented North St. Louis County in the Missouri legislature and during the Ferguson unrest. And now the Bellefontaine neighbors Democrat wants to be Missouri's next lieutenant governor. Pearson joins us next on another edition of Politically Speaking. Nine, eight, eight, seven, six, six five, five, four, three, two, one. Uh, I think that is fair As to I say. As I say, hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but, uh, no, no, I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Alongside me in studio today is... Colleague Joe Manis. And our very special guest for today... Tommy Pearson. A state representative from state representative. North St. Louis County, a Democrat. That is correct. And a candidate for lieutenant governor officially now. But you also have another job, correct? Pastor. Yes. Of the Greater St. Mark Family Church. So you're a man of many titles and many talents. That yes, we correct. want to make sure we did not overlook. So but right. when we have a state legislator on, we always ask them like what their district encompasses. So what is what, where, which area of St. Louis County do you, uh, and St. Louis City, I think, do you that represent? Yeah, I represent uh, the Baton area in the city and, and uh, the county, Bell Fountain Neighbors, Glasgow Village, Riverview Village, and uh, Spanish Lake. And you were first elected to the Missouri legislature in 2010? In 2010, yes. So so what did you do before you were elected to the Missouri House? Well, I served on the Riverview Garden School Board four years from 03 to 2010. I said four, but I meant seven years. From uh, 2003 to 2010, and uh, went off the board and and ran for uh, the House seat. of course, before that, I worked for General Motors for 32 years and, and retired. So you can build cars as well as deliver sermons. I can build cars, <laughs> yes. Now, what, what made you decide to run for the state legislature? Gina, Gina Walsh, uh, was, uh, I preceded her. And she is and now a state senator. She's now a state senator who uh, asked me to run for her seat. Uh, they wanted someone that they knew, and they knew my my record and all, and she asked me to run. I said no <laughs> two or three times, uh, but she was persistent uh, and explained to me because as a pastor, I didn't want to go. I thought I had to move to Jeff City, and I wasn't going to move to Jeff City. And she explained to me because only four months out of a year, you go up on Mondays, come back on there, Thursdays. There's only two representatives who actually have to live in Jefferson City full-time, Jay Barnes and another uh, Jefferson City area right. legislator, Mark <laughs> Bern, daughter. I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but, you know. Right, right. Yeah, but continue. So after, uh, you know, she explained it to me, I decided to go ahead and do it. So who do you room with in Jeff City? Just so our listeners know, most of the legislators, they all bunk in these apartments mm-hmm. or— Little hotel rooms or whatever. Do you have any roommates? No, I uh, I have a hotel that I. W- that which I stay hotel in. do you stay in? I stay in the uh, uh, American Best. Okay. Uh, down on the, what is that Lee Summit? Yeah. Yeah, I th- yeah. I guess we're pulling down the curtain here a little bit that legislators some of them stay in hotels uh, right. in apartments. So. But what- I have a good deal, you know. I mean, I keep the same room. Yeah. Um, the whole time I'm there, uh, even when I go back, I, I get my same room, and uh, I can leave my clothes in there. Really? Wow. Yeah. Such a deal. Mm-hmm. Such a deal. So 
I believe there was a point in time that you were the chairman of the Legislative Black Caucus. Is that yes, correct? That's correct. And what 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 has been kind of your experience like being in the Missouri House? I think when you got there in 2010, that was after a pretty bad election cycle for Democrats. They lost 17 seats, and they've mm. continued to lose seats since then. So it's probably not the most fun atmosphere for a House Democrat. Is that fair to say? That is fair to say. It was. It's been. Uh, not good for me personally, or the Democrats for that matter, um, since I've been there. Uh, I mean, we can't get uh, meaningful legislation passed. Um, and uh, uh, not only get them passed, you can't even get a, get a hearing on, on many of them if they, or if you get a hearing, it'll just be cut up to pieces. Uh, you know, it won't recognize your bill. And so you don't even want to deal with it anymore. I think one of the tangible examples of that, I believe I talked with you earlier this year, was there was a number of bills that were filed at the beginning of the year, many of which were from the Legislative Black Caucus related to the Ferguson unrest involving, you know, body cameras, involving changing the use of force, changing sensitivity training. And a lot of them didn't get a hearing. Some of them got a hearing, but just got stalled in the process. Right. I got a sense that midway through the session, you personally were pretty frustrated by the experience. And at the end, a lot of those bills didn't end up passing. One of them did, which we'll talk about in a minute. What was kind of your perception of how that went this year? Well, it, it, it didn't go well. I, I filed a bill uh, in regards to Ferguson uh, um, in, in regards to police behavior. Uh, when they're, when a police shoot and kill someone that is 20 feet uh, or more from them, pose a no immediate danger to the police officer or, or the public, uh, that if you shot and kill that person, then you should be fired uh, or put on leave rather immediately without pay pending investigation. That bill did get a hearing. But that's all it got was a hearing. It just never came out. And I think this held some personal significance to you because your church, Greater St. Mark's Family Church, played a pretty big role in the Ferguson arrest. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. uh, Well, our church, uh, uh, I got a phone call from uh, Attorney Gray. They wanted a place to uh, hold a rally. So I I said, uh, okay, and the next day, I think it was the next day that they held that rally. And after that, I mean, the floodgate was open. Everybody wanted to have a meeting at the church. And, and of course, we were accommodating to everybody. We didn't, we didn't discriminate against anybody. People that we, that we subscribed to their philosophy, we let them in, and those whose philosophy we did not subscribe to. Uh, because there was a lot of people in there that I didn't really... You know, I didn't go along with what they were saying at all. Now, wasn't your church, now correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't your church where Nixon ended up holding that news conference? Yes, it was. Yeah, because I was there. It was. I was watching it on the live stream, and I've gone to a lot of Jay Nixon press conferences over the year. I'm sure Joe has as well. Yes. I have never seen the governor pelted with so much public criticism before. And this was, like, immediately after Michael Brown's shooting. Down. Well, right. the, I mean, I'm not defending the governor. He didn't, but the um, the whole atmosphere, and this had nothing to do with the pastor, but he was there, so I might be able to offer some insight. Since I was there too, mm-hmm. it got a bit chaotic, and there was uh, at least one or two people who were posing um, 
as reporters, but who really weren't, who started, mm -hmm. um, if you recall, they started um, um, uh, heckling him. Yeah, they, they, they were. They weren't, they were. It, it was kind of wild, and right. they weren't protesters. They were, I don't know, right. what, you know, anyway. Well, I don't know. I was shocked by the whole, by the whole event. I mean, they asked the governor a question and wouldn't let him answer it. Actually, they was bailing the governor out because the governor probably didn't have an answer, but uh, they didn't let him, you know, attempt to give an answer. And I don't know who those people were, but uh, it did get a little hectic, chaotic, you know. And then Congressman Clay kind of stepped in to try to cool things down a little bit. Started and, talking. And, and it got worse. Yeah, it got worse. <laughs> but I, this kind of goes part and parcel with another thing that happened, actually more recently. I was at the final Ferguson Commission meeting. You were actually there as well. Mm -hmm. And the, the co-chairman of the commission, uh, Reverend Starsky Wilson, made what I feel is one of the better speeches I've heard in recent memory. And it was basically telling people who are running for office next year, yourself included, but I think it was sure. mainly centered on gubernatorial candidates that asking for people's votes is not enough anymore. You actually have to promise to do the work to make the St. Louis community and the St. Louis region less divided and better. I'm going to play a clip from that right now. Here it is. Tell me where you stand and where you stood as our community dealt with our burning hearts, our burning desires, and our burning buildings. And you ask them, at the end of the day, when the elections are done, I'm talking statewide, I'm talking local as well, when the elections are done, on that day, are they gonna eat burgers or are they gonna eat steak? And what he kind of meant by that metaphor, um, it was, it was a, a elongated metaphor that in his view, stake is for victory and that people shouldn't be celebrating the end of the Ferguson Commission, that it's a basically a first step in a long road ahead. So I wanted to parlay that in a question to you. Like, what do you think it's going to take of people who want to run for office in Missouri next year? What do you think that they need to bring to the table to fully embrace a public policy uh, set of initiatives to make St. Louis, you know, move forward after the Ferguson unrest? Well, first of all, I, I think in order to run for public office, you need to first have a love for people because, after all, you're running to serve people. And, uh, and, and you, you also need to have uh, a sense of feelings and connection with people. You need to feel how people uh, just feel how they're getting along and just what are their issues and deal with them fairly. We know that we have a police problem in the African-American community. Now, you can put any kind of spin on it you want, and I'm not bashing police officers, but at the same time, I don't want to get killed by one, and I don't want my family getting killed. Uh, so we know we have a problem. Let's look at it and deal with it fairly. Now, was this one of the reasons that you decided to run for lieutenant governor? Or were there other issues that came into it as well? Because some people would say, why in the heck would anybody want to run for lieutenant governor? So I'm interested in your broader look mm -hmm. at if well, this I, was part of it or if it was other issues too. I've never ran for an office without being asked. So I had a couple of people, well, three people, that, uh, uh, to be exact, that asked me to run for lieutenant governor. And I couldn't say no because my message all along during the Ferguson unrest was is that uh, – demonstrating and marching bring attention to the problem, but it doesn't solve the problem. 
in order to solve the problem, you got to get elected and become a policymaker. Uh, and uh, so I couldn't say no at an opportunity to do that. And so here I am. So you're, I guess, one of three lieutenant governor candidates from both parties. Uh, Brad Bradshaw, an attorney, is running as a Democrat. Mm-hmm. Bev Randles and Mike Parson are running as Republicans. Right. So first, you got to get past the Democratic primary. But what mm-hmm. do you think you bring to the table that those candidates don't have for this position? Well, I, I bring to the table uh, a sense of understanding. I've been in the Valley. You know, I walk with uh, the people of Ferguson. I walk with uh, poor people, people. I mean, when I, I worked at General Motors for 32 years, and I was a, a, a union representative there. I also co-wrote the workforce development piece for the I-64 project that uh, put a uh, uh, hundred or so African Americans and women on that job on any given day. So uh, I come up as a fellow who didn't have much. And so I've been through the ranks, and I know what it feels like to not be able to pay your rent. I know what it feels like to make a decision between eating or putting gas in your car so you can get to work the next day. So I understand that. That's what I bring to the table that they perhaps don't bring. Now, do you expect there may be other Democrats getting in the race? There's been rumors about either former Congressman um, Russ Carnahan or maybe some other people. Uh, on the Democratic side, there's rumors on the Republican side right. too. But I'm just interested in your in your feeling at this point. Uh, if there's going to be others, and does it matter to you? It doesn't matter to me. I'm in it to win it. So whoever get in there, I intend to beat them. So, and you had your kickoff ceremony last night. I saw yes. that on, a number of state legislators have endorsed you. I believe members yes. of organized labor groups have endorsed you. Yes. Um, if you end up potentially winning this office because it'll be an open seat it'll probably be a very competitive race compared to if say it was an incumbent which it's not what would you plan to do in the office that is different from the current office holder lieutenant governor peter kinder because even though lieutenant governor's races tend to get zany and you know there's a lot of back and forth the office structurally doesn't have a lot to offer but it provides the ability for the office holder to do a lot rhetorically and, and non-rhetorically. What would you do with the office? Well, you, you know, uh, the lieutenant governor serves on several boards uh, around the state and uh, presides over the Senate. Uh, he's the tiebreaker. If there's a tie vote in the Senate, the lieutenant governor breaks that tie. So one of the things I would do is I would certainly be on the side of the uh, uh, our veterans, our seniors, uh, our farmers, and also our urban uh, communities who in many cases are, are falling apart. Uh, I would, uh, you know, get with the powers that be, try to bring economic development to those areas, and uh, give those people the jobs and opportunities to bring their homes up. If either you or Bev Randalls win this, you would be the first African-American statewide office holder in the state of Missouri. What do you think that would mean for the state if that occurred? Well, if uh, if Bep wins it, it probably would mean disappointment for the state. But if I win it, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think I would be a better lieutenant governor for, than she would be. Uh, I would have a listening ear to all of the people of the, of the state. Uh, I would reach out to everybody and try to bring people together uh, and get rid of the divide between urban 
and suburban and rural and urban. Uh, and uh, I think we can bring this state together. If you had a lieutenant governor without that everyday vote, um, you know, just going around the state talking how we can come together because we're better together. Yeah, and it, it's one other practical thing. If, for example, a Democrat wins like yourself and presides over the Senate, it could potentially give the Democrats an opportunity to really kind of control the procedure of the Senate with a lot more forceful hand than they do now. Joe Maxwell, when he was lieutenant governor, definitely caused some trouble for the Republican majority, when not just with votes. But yeah, of course it was close. I mean, it was the divide between Republican Democrats and the Senate at that point was pretty close. But a couple questions here. First, do you plan to be campaigning Outstate. I mean, as as you know, I mean, outstate rural the rural areas tend to have become kind of a graveyard for Democrats. Mm -hmm. Just conversely, where the urban core has always been not necessarily friendly voter territory when it comes to Republicans. So I'm just interested. How do you plan to get your message to uh, rural Missouri? Since the general view is that a Democrat needs to get in rural Missouri, like 42, 43% of the vote to guarantee that they're going to win. So I'm just interested in how you'll deal with that. Well, I'm going to go to those areas, and I'm going to campaign there. I've been to Joplin already. I've been to Springfield. Uh, and I've addressed uh, the Democratic uh, clubs down there. I've been to the Boot Hill. When I discovered in the Boot Hill that there are a lot of people in the Boot Hill who have given up voting because in their minds they had no one to vote for. Uh, I was talking to a senior lady down there when I was there, and I gave her my card, and she said, you're going to be on the ballot here? I said, yes, ma'am. She said, well, I wasn't going to vote, but I'll vote for you. So she represents hundreds of people in that area who think the same way, that they just don't have anybody to vote for. I give them someone to vote for. Is it because you feel like Democrats in outstate Missouri who are running in competitive races are essentially trying to out-Republican their Republican opponents? They do. Uh, the last Democrat that was down there, you wouldn't know. I mean, it was hard to distinguish between him as a Democrat or a, a Republican because he's trying to pander to uh, the votes down there. And he wasn't looking for the new voter, the disenfranchised voter, but that frequent voter. I'm going to get the disenfranchised voter and put them on the roll, and we're going to win. We're going to pick up some seats down there, some Democratic seats. There aren't any down there now. And we're going to pick up some seats down there because I'm going to get them to the polls. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that our listeners should be aware of, like talking about the boot heel, for example, it used to be a Democratic stronghold. Now, this goes back 35 years. And this goes back 10 years. Maybe. I think it still is. No, yeah. but I meant but my, yes. I meant as far as right. a, you had a Democratic congressman. Right. In fact, I mean, uh, uh, then-Governor Mel Carnahan, he, his plane crashed as he was heading towards New Madrid. I mean, right. you know, he was going to a rally down there. So the And, and it's a very diverse um, racially area. People, I think, tend to put— uh, all parts of rural Missouri in sort of a, a one single bag, and that's not really true. They're all different, and I mean they grow cotton down there. Right. I remember the first time I went down there twenty years ago, I was shocked because I didn't grow up in Missouri and I had no idea. So it just was it's very educational. So aside from some of the concerns about Ferguson, are there other issues that you plan on pressing? Either it be 
I mean, just Medicaid or the budget or education, anything other particular. Oh yeah, that you Medicaid want. expansion. We we need to do that in this state, and I'll and I'll press that issue uh, because it benefits people uh, in in the Boot Hill and areas like that. Uh, but I can relate to the people in that area because my people used to pick cotton in the Boot Hill when I was a youngster. So I was raised up right across the river from uh, in Tennessee. So I am a farmer. I still own land down there. So I understand the farmers and I understand their issues. So, and that's why they're going to support me. So I kind of want to look ahead for next session as well. Um, you will still be in the legislature for another year. Um, one of the things that I think may become an issue that was accomplished from the Ferguson unrest is uh, an overhaul of municipal governance, which was known as Senate Bill 5. And the reason why there may be something next year is because Senator Eric Schmidt has introduced legislation to expand upon Senate Bill 5. Right now, it restricts the percentage of traffic fine revenue cities can keep. He wants to also restrict non-traffic fine revenue ordinances, housing violations, and whatnot as well. What's kind of your thought of that? Because I think that a lot of North County cities, especially the smaller ones, and some of the larger ones are a little skittish about that. What's kind of your thought on that? Well, my thought is that no, no legislation, no bill should uh, put undue uh, burden on the citizens. Uh, and I also think that the, the, the amount of monies that go to the city should be the same for the county and the municipalities. Mm -hmm. Right now it's different, 20% for the St. Louis County and 12% uh, right. for for the uh, for the municipalities. Yeah, because you voted for Senate Bill 5, but, for, but, yes. but many of your uh, colleagues from North St. Louis County voted against it for that very reason. That and, there was the 20% everywhere in the state and 12.5% in St. Louis County. Well, some have joined in a lawsuit. I mean, I wondered about that at the time, you know, if they wouldn't be able to have some sort of, you know, I guess equality argument. I mean, and th this is not a racial thing. It just has to do with communities, some communities being having stricter uh, restrictions put on them than elsewhere in the state. Um, w did that play into your thoughts at all when you were deciding how to vote on that? No, I voted for for the citizens, and citizens were packing courtrooms uh, for a little or nothing. They some cities had quotas uh, on traffic tickets, and uh, and I that's why I voted the way I voted. Not that I was trying to harm the municipality. I. I you know, I didn't like the uh, the twenty percent and the twenty percent. I mean, the twenty percent versus the twelve percent. I think that should be equal parity. I think they should be parity to one another. But I wasn't able to get that. So that's something we'll work on in the next session. But I am not forgiving cities and police officers a free hand at fining and ticketing people as as they will. I do want to play a clip from Cool Valley Mayor Viola Murphy. She's one of the people who um, has joined in on that aforementioned lawsuit. And she and some other African-American mayors in North St. Louis County have argued that Senate Bill 5 is going to make it very difficult for cities with African-American leadership to continue to exist. And here's what she had to say about that. Let's just be, be honest about it. If you eliminate North County, you're eliminating the voice of our constituents. We are 40,000 strong here. We represent a lot of people that do trust us. You know, it's taken us a long time 
to get the trust of the community because all of us in North County have come from administrations. Maybe they weren't doing. I don't know what they're doing, but I know what we're doing. We're making a positive impact on the communities that we serve. So that's their argument. The the proponents of Senate Bill 5 basically have said, look, you know, these cities, not just the, uh, North County cities, but people in South County and West County have been basically placing huge amounts of, of tickets and debt on primarily low-income people. What's kind of your, your take on those types of arguments? Well, uh, my take is the same. You know, I represent the people in those communities. I don't, I don't represent the elected officials. I represent uh, uh, the citizens. And the citizens were put under heavy financial burden with fines of all kinds. And uh, so there need to be some regulation. I'm not for eliminating these cities, but I am, f I am for uh, these cities not placing so much burden on the community in order to survive. Mm -hmm. You know, we need to come up with another way of surviving, some kind of revenue sharing or something. I, I don't know. Yeah, but but I think the proponents of Senate Bill 5 have basically said, you know, these cities, if they want to continue to exist, they can't just exist on traffic fine revenue. They need to find other sources of revenue, and they may have to take the politically unpopular step of raising taxes in some instance, which I know is difficult to do when the citizens are not super wealthy, but that's the argument that they're putting forward. So what other things do you think will be a big issue next session? Well, I think right to work is coming back, and... Uh you know that's always a that's always a tense and touchy bill. You know, uh, especially for unions and people like myself. Um, you know, uh, and I don't know w what else is coming up. I haven't seen the list, but I, I think you know I, I'm I'm encouraged about the session coming up with this leadership. Oh. You know, uh, in what way you want to explain yeah, on that? Because well, just, like, for, just for our listeners, uh, Todd Richardson is the yeah, new House yeah, Speaker. This will right. be his first uh, right. session as Speaker. But continue. Right. I like Todd Richardson. I think Todd is a fair, a fair man. I've been to his district uh, several years ago. I went down and I met with some farmers in his district, and he came and and uh, so I kind of got to know him a little bit. Uh, I think Todd, some things Todd are not going to allow. You know, a lot of this foolishness that uh, that that uh, that are placed on the floor is a waste of time. You know, we talk about guinea eggs and we, we talk about birds and flowers and <laughs> and all of that stuff. City, I mean, this state have more problems than uh, whether or not uh, a guinea egg is listed with a hen egg. Yeah, I, because what is what what some of the the. I don't want to say proponents, but people who are fans of Todd Richardson have said that he has experience kind of pushing substantive, difficult issues across the finish line, like workers' compensation, second injury fund. And as majority leader, I mean, you probably have to give him a lot of credit for something like Senate Bill 5 or, or something like that, too. Um, but, you know, the speakership is a tough position. People criticize you all the time. Do you think he'll be able to face the pressure of the new position? I think it will, uh, you know. Uh, like I say, I, Todd is a strong man, and uh, and he's got a good head on his shoulder. Uh, I don't think he's going to let anything go. Now, do you think the fact that you're running for lieutenant governor, if that's going to affect how either your legislation is treated or how you are treated during the session, 
as far as, uh, I mean, because there's several candidates for statewide office in both chambers. Uh, but I'm just curious if, if it's going to either help or hurt you trying to get some um, legislation through this next session. I don't think it'll hurt. I don't, you know, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't see it hurting me at all. I, I'm, I see some members, uh, some of my colleagues firing at me across the aisle. I, I, you know, you're going to get that. You're just going to get it. Yeah. So you might want to be ready for that. <laughs> but I don't think Todd's going to do it. Yeah, I'm just trying to think if anybody else from the the Missouri House is running for statewide office from the Democratic side or the Republican side. I, I can't think of anybody off the top of my head, but I could. I mean, it's early. Filing hasn't started yet. So yeah, end of February. We end of February. We don't know. But I guess it gets to a broader question because there is an assumption that when the legislature goes into even number years, less gets done because it's, it's election time. And 2016 is going to probably be one of the most consequential elections in Missouri's recent history because every statewide office is up for grabs. Mm -hmm. How can the legislature make sure it doesn't fall into that potential trap? Well, I, I don't know. Uh, you know, as one who's never held leadership position in the House uh, and probably never will, <laughs> I don't know. But I, I don't I still, you know, I personally have a lot of faith in Todd Richardson. You know, and I, I make no bones about it. He's a Republican, but I, I, I like Todd. And uh, I just don't see Todd letting a lot of stuff uh, hang out there. My final question for you, um, how do you think that the governor's race and Chris Coster in general, who I think is probably more to the right on some issues than you, but probably right in there with you and some other issues like Medicaid expansion right to and work, right yeah. to work. How do you think he's going to be able to carry the Democratic ticket? like yourself if you're the nominee. Well, Costa's going to have a hard time without me. Peter Kinder has a way of, of picking up a lot of African-American votes. And I read a poll that says he was going to get 20% of the, of the African-American vote. If that happens, I don't see Costa winning. The only way he's going to win is I keep those votes at home. Uh, and so they're gonna need they're gonna have to embrace me whether they want to or not. But I was already told by someone of of, uh, of real means and power that I don't need them. They need me. Now, um, has Costa reached out to you at all? I, I mean, to be fair to him, he has spent some time in Ferguson and at some of the events. Um, I was curious, and like as you've seen him and others who have appeared at some of these public events, there was a little exchange at the county council meeting on Tuesday where Stinger County Council uh, County Executive Steve Stinger came under fire for not going to this meeting, and his one of his justifications was he said that Coster had been booed. I think you're at this meeting. Yeah, that, uh, was he booed? And is that kind of underscore what what you're just saying? Well, you know, let me be fair. I wasn't there. I got there late, and Costa had spoken and left. Uh, but if he's going to win, he's running for governor. And, yeah, he may get booed in some places, but people will look at you and respect you if you can take it like a man, you know, because I know I'm sure that's some places I'm going to go to where I'm going to get booed. 
and uh, and I'll let him know that, I, that I'm a big boy. I can handle it. Yeah. And as you mentioned before, Peter Kinder, the lieutenant governor, if he's the nominee because he's facing off against three other fairly strong opponents, has put some sweat equity into campaigning in St. Louis and I guess Kansas City, too. It doesn't mean he's going to win either place, but if he can hold down the margins of Coster and, you know, do pretty well in the rural areas, because I know Coster is going to try to do well in the rural areas better than most Democrats. Kinder could be a much more formidable candidate than maybe some Democrats are giving him credit for just because of that. So we'll have to see. But we're we're out of time. It was a pleasure having you. We're looking it was a pleasure being here. We're, we're looking forward to a very fun lieutenant governor's race. They are always very fun. To close us out, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum and read all of our stories at stlpublicradio.org. You can follow Joe on Twitter at, at Jay Manis. That's J M A N N I E S. And I believe we can follow you on Twitter at, at Tommy Pearson. Tommy Pearson, yes. Yeah. Follow. That's P I E R. P I E R S O N. Until next work week. With the IEs. T O M M I E P I E R S O N. Just work with the IEs. Absolutely. Until next week. So long. <laughs> <laughs>